offered and when there's no support. What happens is nobody cares. So if you think about what that might look like in a congregation that calls themselves a church, that might be something that's familiar to you. You may have experienced that before. But when we are, when we are experiencing low challenge and low support, we abdicate our responsibility, we abdicate relationship, and we operate from a place of apathy. Now, when we have high support, when we are feeling high support, but we're not being challenged, it's just as dangerous. When we have high support and low challenge, we get into this, this protective covering. We have a culture of entitlement, and mistrust begins to grow. High support and low challenge, we don't really know our place. We don't know it, what, how, why the leader cares about us. We don't know our, where, where we fit into the larger body. This, this place of high support and low challenge also is a place of, of overprotection. This is like, like helicopter parenting. This is not allowing any growth, but keeping safe. If you think about the way that, that, that might manifest in a church in, in this context of, of protection, but, but no challenge, no, no growth, this, this is also a place where we see not life, but death. Now, if we go to the other side and we see high challenge, but low support, we see domination. We see a culture of fear. We see a culture of manipulation. When we're challenged, but no, without support, that's another way, too. This is also a place of mistrust, because if you think about why a leader would lead in that way, if, if I'm offering high challenge, but I'm also not supporting you in the challenge, obviously, you don't matter very much to me. It has more to do with, it has less to do with you and more to do with me if this is a high challenge and a low support. You think about dominating leaders, you think about leaders that, that create cultures of fear, that, get, that, that, that spur action based out of fear rather than love, you have a, a culture that is high challenge and low support. But if you think about the freedom that comes with the gospel, if you think about the freedom that Paul has been presenting us with in the, the first four chapters of Ephesians, if you think about what he's calling us to, he's calling us to freedom, right? We're talking about freedom, liberation. The way to be liberated is to understand the high challenge and the high support. When we have high challenge and high support, it's a culture of empowerment. It's also a culture of opportunity because we get to do the stuff that we were made to do. Namely, we get to do the stuff that Jesus did. And so when we look at Scripture, all of Scripture, but specifically the next two weeks when we talk heavily about sin, what we have to bear in mind is that if we are a culture of high challenge and high support, at the end we find freedom. If we approach these, these passages about sin from the standpoint of high challenge and low support, then it's just getting beat over the head with Scripture and you realize just how crappy of a person you really are. Using shame as a tool, but not a tool to find Jesus as a tool to just 
put more money in the box or maybe show up and serve in a ministry. But it has nothing to do with freedom. It has nothing to do with the gospel. That's not what Paul is presenting. So, the lens of leadership at the Vineyard Church is one of high challenge and high support. There are two ways to look at this. This is what I need from you. And this is what we need from each other. We need to be able to challenge each other. We need to be able to call each other out. We need to be able to do it with a high level of support. We need to be able to press into the hard things. We need to be able to say the hard things, and we need to do it from a place of a heart that is overwhelmed with the love of the Father. Because when we bring high challenge alongside high support, we see the freedom that the gospel offers. So from that place, we're going to re-enter our journey through Ephesians. Last week, we saw Paul make a transition. He wrote this letter to the Ephesians church, and he makes a transition with that word, therefore, that starts out chapter, uh, chapter 4. He transitioned from uh, a couple of chapters, a couple of, you know, the first half of the letter being about what God has done. Not only what God has done, but what his plan is for us. And now we're into a place where we're hearing how the plan changes everything. How this plan changes everything. When you hear us say things like Jesus loves you the way that you are, but he won't leave you the way that you are, this is a passage that we have in mind when we say things like that. As we step into the next passage of this letter, it's important, though, that we don't separate the plan of God from the change that it brings. We can't, celebrate, we can't separate the planner or the plan from the change that it brings. When we separate the two, we turn to following Jesus as a project of morality. This is not a high-challenge, high-support way of looking at Scripture when it becomes morality. While morality is something that we have to take seriously— it can't be morality for the sake of behavior. But morality as a reflection of our created image. This isn't about doing. Nothing in this, in this book is about doing. This is about being. The brilliance of the letter that Paul wrote is found as we see the presentation of the identity, our true identity from the beginning and then everything he points us to flows from that lens of identity. We're not called to be moral, to behave. You've heard me talk about how frustrating that was as a kid, to be told to behave. I don't know what have is, and I can't be it. <laughs> Morality is not about behavior. It's about reflection of the image. So we're transitioning now into what reality becomes when we put on the identity of an adopted child called by love. So if you would, join me in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life 
God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasures and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. The words we have from Paul in this passage have been misused in many contexts as a justification for weaponizing sin. We're going to unpack what weaponized sin looks like in a little bit, how weaponizing sin is a sin in and of itself. But remember that, that Paul wrote just a few lines ago in the, the section that we, we considered last week about how, or a few weeks ago, about how we are the masterpiece of the Creator. About when we step into the reality of what, what Jesus is offering us, we are the masterpiece. We are the piece of art that defines the artist. We are God's own creation. He talked about the movement from death to life. He talked about identity. He talked about the identity and how it is not rooted in selfish ambition and self-protection after we meet Jesus. His identity before he meets Jesus was certainly rooted in selfish ambition and self-protection. We see that in, in Acts chapter 9. But Paul is writing with compassion that comes from his experience. Compassion that extends into this passage. We have to keep that in mind as we hear what Paul is going to reveal to us in, in, this, in the passage that we look at today. This is what he had to say. We can't stay the way we are. We can't stay the way we were. When Jesus met us, we can't stay the way that we were. Consider Paul as an example of this in Acts chapter 9. He's on the road to perpetrate religious terrorism. He is on his way to perpetrate. As a Jewish leader, Paul had rooted out the Christian churches that were in Jerusalem, killed and imprisoned the people that followed Jesus, and he was on his way to do the same in Damascus. We see the, him meet the resurrected Jesus on the road, and this encounter... This is, this is important. This encounter changed the course of world history. The encounter of Paul on the road to Damascus changes the course of world history. Paul is confronted with his sin. He's confronted with his ambition. He's confronted with his motives. With his jealousy. With his lust for power. He's confronted not just with what he has done. He's confronted with what he's doing. Now imagine if, after this encounter on the road to Damascus, after this encounter in chapter 9, if Paul continued on his mission. Imagine if Paul met Jesus acknowledged Jesus, maybe once a week went to a place with other people that acknowledged Jesus, but didn't change his plan? What if he continued into Damascus as a religious terrorist? What would the world look like if this encounter hadn't changed Paul? if he wasn't different after meeting Jesus, if that difference was not manifest in his actions. Imagine if, after encountering the risen Savior, 
He went on living a life of destroying other lives. All for the sake of creating and protecting his worldview. The encounter with Jesus makes that unimaginable to Paul. And Paul is now pointing that out to us. After we meet Jesus, after we have the power encounter, the reality, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, after we see Jesus, it is unimaginable to return to the way that we were. So how were we before this encounter? How are we before this encounter? Paul tells us, we're hopelessly confused. Minds full of darkness, wandering far from a life of order, closed minds, hardened hearts, no sense of shame, living for lustful pleasure and eagerly practicing things that are impure. Now the hopeless confusion is manifest in being ignorant of what's important. What I mean by, by that, about this, this ignorance of what's important, the world doesn't know, the world that doesn't know Jesus works really hard to survive. Would you agree with that? The world that doesn't know Jesus works really hard to survive. We see this in, in I mean, we don't have to go far to see this, but we see, we see folks that are engaged in, in back-breaking, spirit-breaking labor just working to survive. We're seeing people put a lot of energy into this, this move just to survive. The striving is real, but the striving is towards a purpose and will that is not the purpose and the will of God. It's a striving of survival, and it actually leads to death. It's being confused by that reality that no matter how hard I work, no matter how hard I work, I stay where I am. I can't earn enough money. I can't gain enough support. I can't gain enough stuff. I can't do anything to make the chaos stop. The chaos continues to come. When I get through one piece of chaos, what comes right on the back end of that? More chaos. It never ceases. Chaos upon chaos upon chaos. The confusion is manifest in looking at all that I'm doing in my life that should bring me comfort and should bring me order, but only seeing chaos. Hopeless confusion. Now, because our culture tells us we have to do it ourselves, our culture tells us that only the strong survive. When we're in this place of hopeless chaos, we close our minds to generosity, we close our minds to compassion, we close our minds to sacrif sacrificial service, because all of these things are threats to our own survival. Because the bottom line is that this chaotic world is a world of competition. Giving in this type of a life, being generous in this type of a life, when it can lead to getting something in return, is typically what we see. Our hearts are hardened to others because we're competing with them. It's fascinating here, the word that Paul uses, the Greek word that he uses for a hardened heart. He uses a word that, that we would say is petrified. 
He's calling the heart petrified. What hopeless confusion and what competition leads us to is a petrified heart. So we have organic material that becomes a stony replica of what it was. We can see this at play in Paul before he met Jesus. We see the stony replica of a heart in in his motives, in his actions, what he was trying to do. How he justified this, how, how for him it was a righteous quest driven by a stony replica So the point he's making in this passage is, after meeting Jesus, we can't return to a stony stony replica. We can't return to competition. We can't return to striving for self. We can't return to an attempt to mold and form our own world so that comfort results. We can't return to the way that we were. Verse 20. That isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature. Let your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust— I'm sorry. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I would just make a comment here that, that in a, a high challenge, low support structure, the way that we could read this is don't be who you were, figure it out. But what Paul is saying is don't be who you were, let the Holy Spirit do this work in you. As a result of meeting Jesus, rather than falling back into the way that we were, rather than Paul falling back into the way that he was, we realize what we are. Paul realized who he is. We see the intent of God as his children, as the one that he calls masterpiece. We see the intent of God. We see the order of God. We see the perfection of God. And we step into the reality of his plan of reconciliation. The reality of his plan of reconciliation is human perfection. To be perfectly human, we accept the role of bearing his image as we put down our right to bear our own image. We set back what was broken in the early days of creation. We see in those days that that humanity was created perfect. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5. This is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He made humanity 
in perfection. We also see, though, and we also know that perfection was lost through sin. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Earlier in that same letter, he wrote this just to help us make the point today. For everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. This is a great opportunity to remind us of the, that definition of everyone. We know the definition of everyone? Uh, so, yeah, what about this? Definition of all. Man, I cannot trip you up today. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, while sin is manifested in behavior, sin is actually a relational issue. If you think about why the sins, especially the sins that Paul is going to list off, why they're such a big issue, it's because it attacks unity. Sin attacks community. Sin, manifest in behavior, is a relational issue. The sin of, think about the sin of lying, cheating, stealing, sexual immorality, drug or alcohol abuse. It's all manifest in behavior. The root of, of that behavior, though, is also found in the, the chaos of the loss of order. It's found in a relational break that makes us do things that serve self-protection and self-ambition. It's about striving, trying to make it on our own. It forces us to put self over others. And so sin, manifest in behavior, is a relational issue. So when we think back about that call to morality, this isn't morality for behavior's sake. This is morality for community's sake. Sin is a break in relationship, not behavior. Because that's true, managing behavior is not a method to stop sinning. We say that again. Managing behavior is not a, well, actually, okay, it is a method. It's a really bad method that won't work. But managing behavior as a method to stop sinning does not lead us to the place of liberation. But what it does do is an excellent method for making religion. If you want to be religious, one of the most clear paths to being religious is attempt to create a way of managing behavior that would stop sin. If you manage behavior, you've just founded a religion. Not something I would congratulate you for, but... That is what takes us to religion. The idea that we can heal relationship on our own, that we can restore order on our own, that we can do it all by managing behavior. And then, what's the natural evolution of that kind of thought? Well, manage my behavior, sure. But I'm going to manage your behavior, too. And then, <laughs> that's why I picked you. That's like a saddle bronc right there. <laughs> we create religion that says, 
I can fix myself, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start fixing you. And then we're going to get other people that we're going to start fixing. And then I'm gonna, we're going to focus less on, on me being fixed, because that's not really important. What's really important is you being fixed. And what that is, the definition of being fixed is what I tell you that it is at the time. And we have a religion grow. We can't restore order. The ministry of reconciliation does not come through that lens. So if we can't do it ourselves, how do we restore order? After that order was lost, after sin entered the world, after humanity lost that image-bearing of Jesus, the question becomes, how do we regain it? A religious person would tell us that we regain order by working hard to earn it and attain it. But if religious people were correct, then order would not be found in the love of God, but in our own individual efforts. And so we wouldn't need a loving God because we just made him irrelevant. If I can do it myself, if I can work myself towards perfection, if I can work myself towards human perfection, I don't need God. I am God. I would make such a crappy God. Amen. <laughs> but what we find when we take behavior as our method of dealing with sin, what we find when we take our own striving, our own, our own efforts as the way to attain human perfection, what we see in that is, is, a, is being led to competition and striving, and so we're back to where we started. So religion clearly is not the way if it leads us to competition and striving. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 wrote, For the law never made anything perfect. Now we have confidence in a better hope which we, through which we draw near to God. Now we're going to get close to what actually can bring us back to human perfection. Jesus, the sacrifice of the sinless king, his resurrection to life inaugurates a free gift of salvation and the invitation to be adopted by the Father. After meeting Jesus, after accepting our place in the family of God, we see the purpose of God, we see his order, which defeats chaos, and it makes, us, makes it foolish for us to want to return to the way that we were before. Not because we have done anything, but we've, because we've accepted the identity of the one that calls us masterpiece. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 says, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into the, his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. And you did nothing. That was me at the end of there. I don't want you to think I'm writing scripture from the pulpit. That Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says, For... By that one offering, the one offering of the sinless king. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. In that one offering, not what we earn, not what we can attain, not what we strive for. In the one offering of the sinless king, we are invited into the place of being called children of God. Understanding that this is the victory of Christ allows us to step into relational order, and it allows us to show others how to do the same. 
Again in Colossians chapter 1, we see, So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. We then find ourselves in this process of, of perfection, the process of taking on the family resemblance, taking on the image of the Father. We grow in perfection, and we see perfect love, perfect peace, and perfect unity come as a result. Not, again, because of what we are doing, but because of what the Spirit is doing within us. In James chapter 1, we see, the, the, uh, we see James write, So let it grow. When your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. We are led to this place of perfection when we accept our identity, the identity that Paul is talking about. The Apostle John, in his first letter, wrote, But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Another way to say that is, those that don't stay the same. Those that don't stay the same are living in him. And Paul, to the church in Philippi, in chapter 4, wrote, Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds everything that we can understand. How's that for a, a, a response to chaos? The peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Thank God we don't have to do that ourselves. Are you good at bringing peace by yourself? You can ask my kids. I am not good at bringing peace myself. Peace. God's peace. Exceeding everything that we can understand. What we see Paul talking about here is not a formula for how to strive. A formula for how to attain. But what happens when we submit to the will of the Father and we see his ministry of reconciliation come. Human wholeness in the image of God, given at creation, lost in the fall, fully restored in Christ Jesus. Because of that, we can read what we have next from Paul from the place of high support and high challenge. Ephesians 4 starting in 25. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we, all, we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything that you say be good and helpful so that your words will be encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved by the day of redemption. Now the danger of this passage is to hear it as a call to behavior modification. We have to be honest about the reality that, that, that many people experience church through that lens of behavior modification. Just stop stealing. Stop lying. Behave. Church, for some people, has become a call to modify behavior. Not to image the Father 
and to conform to the comfort of the Father, but to conform to the comfort of a group for the benefit of the group. In that, with that method, we see forgiveness of sin not as a free gift of the Father, but as something held as currency to affect submission or control. Many have seen Paul through this manipulative lens, but it's important that we see what he's actually calling us towards. See, weaponizing sin, to my mind, means that, that we make sin about behavior, and then we use that as a stick to beat people into sinless lives. The point that Paul's making here is not a call to shame, but a call to fully understand what it means to be brought from death to life. There is no life in weaponized sin because using sin as a mechanism to control is a sin in and of itself. The compassionate plea from Paul to turn away from things that we used to know is a step into a process of perfection. It's not meant as a mechanism of manipulation. So what he's telling us to do here is if you tell lies, recognize why you tell lies and awaken to the new reality that you don't need to protect yourself anymore because you are the chosen child of God. If you're angry, evaluate your anger. Is it righteous anger? Anger about stuff that makes the father angry. Justice issues. Or is this anger rooted in selfishness? Am I angry because of what I'm not getting? Am I angry because I'm owed and not receiving? If that anger will bring division, what we're called to do after we meet Jesus and we're in this new life, rather than step into this anger, especially the anger that causes division in this book about unity, we're called to reconcile so the enemy loses power. If you're stealing, if you're abusive, recognize what it is that's causing you to victimize others. Allow Jesus to fill that place so that we can reflect the Father. This is not about behavior. It's not about just stop, be good. This is about recognizing when we were in death, we did things in order to survive. Now that we are in life, we don't have to do things to survive because we have the promises of the Father. We are at the Father's table. We have the love of the Father. We have everything that we need. We don't have to lie anymore because we don't have to protect ourselves. We don't have to steal anything because God will provide. We don't have to defeat anybody because Jesus already won the victory. It's done. And so as the activity of God on earth, the church, we call ourselves together from a place of high support and high challenge 
to work together as we work this stuff out and we move from death to life together. We notice things in each other and we help bring life out where death once was. We do it with support and we never stop challenging each other. We don't call each other to behave. We call each other to reflect the image of the God that calls us masterpiece. This new identity is real, and we see the effect. Finishing out our passage today, Ephesians 4, 31, and into chapter 5. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Let me give you a warning about what's about to happen. You know, we get to this place, and I tell you every week, that this is my favorite place to be because we get to see if this stuff is real. We actually get to see it happen. If you are feeling bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, any type of, type of, of, of evil, if you're feeling that, I'm going to call you up to a place where we can drop all of that on the floor and see death actually die and life emerge. Get rid of all bitterness. We're going to do that today. If you got any of this stuff, let's get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other. You see the high support coming in now, right? Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one, one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Imagine if we could be a place where we give room for people to work this stuff out. One of the first times that I was in this congregation, what I, what I heard from, from Alan when he was preaching was what if we were a place where you could come in and make a mess on the floor and trust that your friends would clean it up. And that's when I knew I was home. Because we have two roles. We come in here and we make a mess on the floor. And the carpet is not like, this is not pristine carpet. Mess it up! And we also have that role of cleaning up when our friends come in. We don't chastise for the mess they made. We don't look at a stand and be like, remember when they did that? That was disgusting. What is wrong with them? What did they eat? <laughs> we have two roles at the Billings Vineyard. Two roles that are rooted in our DNA. The first role is to come into the house and make a mess on the floor. If you need to make a mess on the floor, would you do that today? Because the other role comes soon after you've made a mess on the floor. The other role is we are the cleanup crew. Well, we don't do the cleaning. We know how to connect to the holy janitor. And Rory's a good dude but he ain't a holy janitor. <laughs> when we are messing on the floor and cleaning up after each other, we are living in the light. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and, ordered, and, and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. We see the life of Paul 
we see with that life. This life that changed the course of human history. That what he's calling us to cannot be separated from his testimony. He's writing about a process that he was in when he wrote. This is not religious talking down. This is, this is testimony of what happened in his life. We know that this is a process, one that requires the presence of faithful friends to show us grace. To encourage us, to walk beside us. Because the reality is this. The call to life is a call to life together. We do this together. We cannot make a mess on the floor and then clean up our own mess. We need people that have seen that mess before in their own life and know how to get it cleaned up. You cannot mess yourself and clean yourself. You don't like that? <laughs> Man, that heckling we were talking about earlier. I thought I was kind of on a roll there. We... That's, <laughs> that's, yep, we got Tracy right there. Tra yeah, there we go. That's, wow, this could get, I don't know if we've gotten out of hand in a hurry or we could get out of hand in a, in a hurry. To bring it back, though, we do this together and we model this to the world together. We can't step into the life intended. We cannot step into the life of order. We cannot step into the identity of the child of God. We cannot be a pleasing aroma to God without the unity in the life of the church. We can't do this alone. We cannot be children of God without all of our siblings. It just doesn't work. So, as we close today, I want to further de-weaponize sin by offering a reminder that this process is difficult and this process is a process that we will be engaged in until we are with Jesus in the resurrection or until he comes back. Romans chapter 7, Paul writes this, which I think is, is, you think about high support and high challenge. Here's Paul giving us high support and high challenge. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what's wrong. Is that resonating? Man, I, I see this reflection of, of my battle in what Paul's saying right now. Paul understands. Paul gets me. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me for this from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God, God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. James offers us this encouragement as we finish today. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. We will not be a congregation that doesn't make mistakes. We will always have messes on the floor. Praise God for that. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect. 
and could also control ourselves in every other way. I don't know about you. Controlling my tongue is pretty hard sometimes, especially driving on Main Street. We all make many mistakes. In this process of perfection, we are not going to be perfect until we're with Jesus. Now, Vineyard, this is not an invitation to make sin permissible. It's an invitation to show each other how grace works, how we can spurn each other to step into our true identity by recognizing the process that we're in, recognizing how difficult this process is, recognizing that Paul, who, who wrote so much of this New Testament that we have, the struggles that he had, we recognize those struggles, not just in myself, but we recognize them in each other, that you are in the same place, that you are working towards the same things. And instead of creating a behavior standard, we offer grace as we step into our true identity. This is a call to accountability. This is the high challenge. We don't accept sin, but we recognize the process and love each other through the process as we together become the body of Christ. Amen. Amen.